0: Very welcome everyone to this seminar, which is done in cooperation between the Swedish Institute of International Affairs in Stockholm, where I am now, and the Trans-European Policy Studies Association, which is a network of research institutes to which also UVI belongs. My name is Gunilla Herolf. I'm a a senior associate research fellow here at this institute. Today, we will deal with the theme European solidarity, and we will address the questions about what it means in terms of definition and also what it can mean in terms of policies of the European Union. We talk a lot about European solidarity these days, but at the same time, it's not easy to give a precise definition about this concept. And we have also seen on many occasions that the European countries not least the countries within the European Union, have very different opinions about it. Now, these facts are the background to a research programme called Europe's Future, in which authors from almost all European countries have dealt with European solidarity. And in about two months, we will have a book, European Solidarity in Action and the Future of Europe, Views from the Capitals, to be published by the Springer Publishing House. I'm the author of the chapter of Sweden. It's a very small chapter, I should say, also. But I have briefly described the Swedish policies in terms of European solidarity. (coughs) The examples that I have brought up are the COVID-19 crisis, (coughs) in which Sweden was part of the so-called frugal Four which also created some discussions in Sweden, but I also bring up the migration crisis in 2015, in which Sweden received more asylum seekers than any other EU member. These are only two examples of policies where European countries took and take different positions. So in order to shed more light on what European solidarity should and can mean, I have invited three particularly knowledgeable persons. So I'm going to pose some questions to these three. Uh, And the first thing I'm interested in is to know how they look on the issue of what European solidarity can mean. So we will have three short introductions from each of them and then a discussion among them. And at the very end, we will invite questions also to the speakers. So the first person I would like to invite here is uh, Michel Keding. Uh, he is professor at the University of Duisburg essen also a Jean Monnet professor, with a very long experience of European integration and European Union politics. Previously, he's also been visiting professor at the College of Europe in Bruges, in Brugge, and visiting fellow at the IPA Institute of Public Administration in Maastricht. He's also one of the three editors of this publication that I've been talking about, and not to forget, also former chairman of TEPSA. So... I would like to invite you, Michel, to make the first introduction here about European solidarity, please.
1: Yes, thank you very much for your kind introductory words, Gunella, and the invitation to speak to you and to share my views on, and the views also of others around solidarity in practice uh, across the European Union. And the question you put up there In terms of concept, what does actually sovereignty mean, I probably would love to start with the very simple statement that European solidarity is about understanding each other. And that's exactly what this book is all about, because the European Union and European integration does only work as long as we keep on being interested in what all 27 member states think, in various aspects and obviously they think very differently and they might indeed have very different interests and that's exactly where we get it. But I would probably would like to stress the point that solidarity is less about defending own interests. That's probably a discussion we will be having anyhow. I would more at this point stress the point that solidarity is a European value and maybe, or hopefully also a motive for action at the European Union level. Because in the end, the European Union is a union of people and nation states of both, of sovereign nation states, we have to underline this, and interdependence uh, between human beings and states creates a moral duty, in my opinion, for supporting each other at all and during all times, in times of crisis in particular, and we have seen quite many of those Um, over the last couple of years and decades. Um, Now, so you could actually say, if you want, that it is a cornerstone of European integration that solidarity can be interpreted or should be interpreted as understanding each other and being aware of our differences across the 27 EU member states and the interdependencies on policies uh, and joint responsibilities for a common future of European integration. So, and this is exactly what I think uh, this publication is also about Um, with 41 chapters. You see that practice or European solidarity in practice um, is a shared contribution uh, vis-a-vis the future um, of Europe. Um, Only together, Only by solidarity in practice, we have been able to fight pandemic, the current pandemic. That's at least my argument, and I'm convinced and I'm happy to underline this with figures and more information uh, to find the right medicine to to actually raise money um, um, in order to make sure that it's uh, the sizes of population that matter and not the sizes of the GDP whether and how many vaccines uh, and doses of vaccines you get, because otherwise Germany could have done a probably better deal uh, without the European Union. Um, But no, that's not what the European Union is all about. It is about making sure that all 27 27 member states get their share and that together um, uh, in living solidarity, we will make sure that we have the right medicine but also strengthen the Euro uh, zone and solve the migration challenge, secure Europe's role in the world and make, make a valuable contribution to challenges such as um, um, the climate change um, as such. So in a way, the moment European solidarity in practice works, it's also an opportunity and a way to, 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 to gain back um, sovereignty uh, for the European Union, for individual EU member states. I think that's a very important point. And that's why, and the reason why we strongly believe in this concept of solidarity in the European Union, um, is that also all the EU institutions are inspired by solidarity. If you look at the composition of the European Parliament, the division of members of the um, across um, it is solidarity uh, very much in practice you have uh, if you look at the the definition of the um, uh, qualified majority voting in the uh, council in the European council uh, in council more particularly um, you see it's all about solidarity in practice because otherwise we would have a very different system put in place in order to uh, agree on laws and new legislation. But European solidarity requires a number of issues, and that's where we might still be weak. And that is clearly European identity. Um, a European solid- solidarity cannot be taken for granted and needs to be backed up by a European public. And, um, um, and that's why I think European solidarity needs a transnational communication space. And that's exactly Uh, the reason why we have this book with these 41 chapters, because in the end, it's about understanding each other. And by understanding and getting there, um, we need a European space. And that's exactly what we are currently doing here. Thank you very much for the invitation, and I give back to you.
0: Thank you very much for this insightful uh, remarks, Michel. And um, I would like to give the word to Katarina, but first I would like to present her. Uh, Katarina Orescu Mascareñas is the director at KREAB. She is also chairman of the board at the Center of European Studies at Lund University. And she is member of the board at the Institute for Security and Development in Stockholm. Uh, Many of us also know her well because of her former job. She was the head of the Commission's representation in Stockholm between 2015 and 2020. And previous to that, she has been state secretary a couple of years ago, and she has held various positions at the EU Commission. So please, Katarina.
2: Thank you very much, Gunilla, for that kind introduction. And great to be with you, Niklas and Michael, to discuss this uh, important uh, subject, uh, which I think is very topical now after the COVID pandemic. Um, it, it can, it can be discussed in so many different ways and dimensions, and, and also policy-wise, but um, just uh, to say uh, what Gunilla also has said, that it is um, a very vague concept that can be interpreted in, in uh, many ways. And it's not actually uh, clarified in the treaties, even though if you look at the Lisbon Treaty, it's mentioned very many times uh, when it, I mean, in article two uh, as a kind of an overarching uh, aim of of European uh, cooperation but also in context to migration policy the common foreign and security policy uh, and we have of course uh, I will come back to that um, the solidarity clause itself which is uh, very concrete um but so so um, why why is it so vague then well if you look at the different roots of it I think that gives, a little bit uh, maybe of explanation and and clarity. Uh, And I believe there are different roots of this solidarity concept. I mean, there is the moral obligation that you should help your neighbor. uh, And that comes from our common uh, Christian beliefs. Um, But there's also a very practical one um, one of enlightened self interest. Uh, and that comes, for example, if you look at the internal markets, uh, we know that if we trade with each other and uh, the old uh, economic policy of comparative advantage, we are all better off. So it's uh, it's a kind of self interest in the long term. but there's also the notion of reciprocity and a kind of an insurance thinking, if I'm in a crisis right now, Now um, uh, you will help me, but I will also help you in the future when you are in a crisis. So uh, we we are also all better off if we help each other. And then there's also uh, the shared common value in the solidarity concept that we all uh, have um, a common ground when it comes to European values. Uh, But you see there also... If we go through these different routes, there between different member states, there are different attachment, different importance attached to the different routes. I would say, uh, so that's also maybe why uh, it's it's quite vague in the treaties. So, what is the what is the state of play right now for this uh, the, solid, the solidarity uh, concept? Uh, I would say the the most practical one which we also saw actually in the Covid pandemic is the article 222 which uh, talks uh, about um, that we all should uh, act jointly in a spirit of solidarity in uh, in the case of a terrorist attack or natural or man-made disaster and that Uh, has led to that we have this civil protection mechanism that actually was invoked during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. But we have also the solidarity thinking in the cohesion policies and that we should reduce disparities. Um, some say this is more a moral obligation. Others say it's a kind of compensation for the internal markets. Then we have a quite recent one, the social dimension, uh, which is a slower building one, but since um, the summit in Gothenburg in 2017 that has also uh, evolved. Uh, So so these you can see are quite practical. Then as uh, Gunilla said, during Covid we've seen um, also acts of solidarity, even though in the beginning the European cooperation was very criticized because Countries are closing their borders, wanting to have their medical equipment for themselves. But then we have quite strong uh, solidarity coming to the joint uh, vaccination procurement programs, being stronger together when we've procured mm-hmm. uh, the vaccines or the recovery package. So I would say in the end, the pandemic led to a stronger uh, solidarity than before in the health uh, field. And then you, we have some kind of deterrence solidarity, also in terms of Brexit, saying the rest of the member states should be um, act in solidarity, uh, and when one country is leaving, so different kinds of solidarity. Why am I saying all of this? Well, I would like to actually link it to what Michael was saying about it's all about understanding because when we define the solidarity uh, in different fields I I think that is you can't have a common definition of solidarity you need to go into the different policy fields and here it's a question of understanding of each other and negotiations. But in order to negotiate what is the common concept of solidarity in a field, you need to understand each other. So therefore, I think it's fantastic uh, uh, that you're doing uh, this book uh, because you need a more common discussion. That's also why we have this Future of Europe conference to anchor and... and, um, spread the knowledge of what is going on in the, EU, in, in the EU and why are we doing it. So I think whether the root is the moral obligation, it's the enlightened uh, self-interest or reciprocity, or it's based on identity, um, you need to have uh, a definitions, discussions, negotiations of it. Because, for example, in the internal market, the enlightened self-interest is not obvious or the recovery package. Why is it long term of benefit to Sweden to have a recovery package that benefits Italy, for example? So I think I'll, I'll, I'll end this uh, with agreeing with Michael that we, we, need, uh, we need to discuss and understand the, the different meanings of solidarity.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much, Katarina. And uh, last uh, person to give his views will be Niklas Bremberg, who is a senior research fellow at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs, where we are now. And he's also associate professor at the Department of Political Science at Stockholm University. He has published extensively on the evolution of the European security community in the post-Cold War era and the changing nature of European diplomatic practices. And I would also like to add that he is one of those who is uh, most uh, knowledgeable about the southern part of Europe and the Mediterranean problems that I can that we have in Sweden. So, Niklas, I'm sure you will add a lot with the deep insights that you have from your research field there. So please, Niklas.
3: Thank you. Thank you very much, Gunilla, for those kind words of, of introduction. Uh, let me begin by saying congratulations to you and also to, to Mikhail for, for, for the book uh, and for uh, advancing this, this research project and contributing to, to our common discussion on on this obviously important important topic. I think uh, my uh, comments uh, go very much uh, along the same lines as Katharina and, and Michal. I think it's important to kind of highlight uh, first, I think what, what Katharina was alluding to, the kind of the, the deep roots uh, that our uh, common political community that is uh, the European political community of states and uh, people that, that Michal highlighted is, it has this kind of a strong historical tradition where it comes to a, a, a sense of, you know, what it means to be a, a solidarity citizen and what that takes and what that kind of demands of moral obligations in towards, towards political communities in a sense that it, it, it's kind of meaningful to have a conversation about this at all, uh, uh, I think testifies to, to that, uh, to that uh, historical kind of um, underpinnings. Now, I think when, but, but I think I come from this from a slightly different perspective perhaps, and I'd like to draw a little bit on, on some of the uh, academic work that has been been done recently that I think are uh, important and maybe also useful for, for our discussion here today. Um, I think, and so kind of adding to what Katarina and also Michal was, was saying, um, to me, at least as a political scientist, it is difficult to, to kind of envision Uh, any political community that that would be able to sustain itself based on a notion of voluntary solidarity. If it was up to all members to kind of contribute as much as they like, whenever they like, obviously it's extremely hard for any uh, um, political political community to to sustain itself. That's obviously true for for states. uh, And that's also true for the European Union, of course. If you look at it in practice, A lot of uh, the core state functions that uh, European or EU member states have um, developed historically have been more or less transferred to a common European framework, right? We see it in the treaties. Michal mentioned uh, many of these um, aspects, and in, in his uh, remarks, Katarina mentions other. Uh, in her, so that's that's a process that we have seen, right? That is the transfer of core state powers to the to the EU and the European level is 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 real, right? It's 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 there. However, there's a lack of. Um, Kind of a sense, a strong sense of collective identification with with the, the 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 kind of the in reality existing political community, which is centered on on the EU today, and that is obviously, I think, what it what makes these conversations about European solidarity um, complicated and maybe also vague. And 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 what Catalina was saying, because on the one hand, we think or we tend to end up in discussions of whether it's solidarity to, to contribute or not, whether it's in uh, in our self-interest of doing it or or not. When we think about, you know, s- states versus um, uh, member states, among member states or states versus some kind of a European, European level. So I think that is... So, I mean, to me, it is hard not to uh, or it's hard to have a meaningful conversation about European solidarity if we all if we don't connect that to important issues of identity and also important issues uh, in the end of democracy so to me um I mean um I think the the, the kind of the 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 problem that we're in now, the, the, the predicament that we're in now in, in, in the emergent political order in, in, in Europe, right, is um, that it's extremely, it's it's difficult to have meaningful democratic contestation around issues that are very kind of, um, you know, important for, for uh, ordinary citizens and their lives. Any political um, community or politics in general is about Redistribution—that's the—that's the core of, of, of politics, right? And we have many mechanisms for for doing this kind of redistribution, setting up markets, or or, or also kind of uh, other other means of redistribution on on the European level. But um, there is a, a kind of a, a, a lag or a gap between the uh, political conversations, the democratic contestations around what kind of europe and what kind of redistribution that we would like to see on the european level uh, that that we are that we are seeing today so i think that's so to me and that's my kind of initial take here, to me it's 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 difficult to have um, a meaningful conversation of, 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 around european solidarity if we don't also have a discussion on on you know how do we advance uh, democracy in in europe and how do how do we and advanced meaningful contestation that that goes beyond this kind of anti establishment uh, euroskeptic uh, parties that we are that we are seeing uh, in you know becoming more and more successful on the European level but also on the national level so I think that's something that we need to also maybe put on the table alongside the many insightful comments made by Katharina and Michal uh, already in the beginning so I'd I'll, I'll like to end my introduction there thank you uh,
0: thank you very much uh- Niklas, and uh, I have a feeling that Michel and Katarina would like to add something to these uh, last views too. So who who will like to start? Yeah, Michel.
1: Okay, well thank you very much. Um, yes, uh, that would be really nice. I think I, maybe just continuing where Nicholas has stopped, um, I'm stressing the point of advancing democracy. I think that's exactly what I try to also um, underline, maybe in different terms, but that we in the European Union and in the member states, uh, in order to make it all work and to continue to have uh, solidarity as a cornerstone of European integration. we we require to develop this concept of European identity further. Uh, And for this, I clearly think that we need uh, to develop the idea of a European public, of a transnational communication space further and to take this more seriously. And I'm not saying that this has to come from Brussels. (laughs) Uh, That's not my point, not at all. Um, To the contrary, I think this is something that needs to develop Across the EU member states, um, and, um, and 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 starting with the prerequisite and the precondition that we keep to, we keep to, to 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 we need to be interested and keep to be interested and trigger interest for the others. Um, because the moment we stop wondering what's happening in Cyprus or, or what's happening in Poland, that's the end of European integration. Then there is no point that we actually go except for maybe economic good reasons that we might have a single markets and operating. But if you want the European Union to be more than an uh, operational single market, um, uh, you, you need to think around this. Uh, so the democratic notion of this concept, I think, um, yeah. That would be one addition. I have many more, but I maybe leave it here for the time being. Um, I, 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 yes, thank you.
2: I think Niklas' comments were extremely interesting as well. And I'm thinking there there is a dilemma because a lot of what the European Union is doing is interstate solidarity, uh, but not inter-individual or interpersonal um, solidarity. So for an ordinary citizen, it might not be so obvious what, what it means, European solidarity, and is it wor- worthwhile? Uh, for example, the, the joint uh, proc- procurement programs for vaccines that were incredibly important, of course, that the EU could go together, be forceful, nego- negotiate bigger quantities to a better price than a small member state could do. But, but is that something people are, aware of because it's the it's the nation state that then distributes it to the citizens so i don't think we in sweden for example think that this is thanks to an eu joint procurement program also the cohesion policy i think uh, that's maybe not fair because in member state many member states people know that it's eu money but again it's the it's the nation state that has the role to distributed in Sweden, I'm I'm sure. Because when I was working for the commission, there was so much uh, cohesion money that was distributed in Sweden, but there wasn't a Swede that knew about it because Mm -hmm. it was the nation states that took responsibility for it. So I think that the solidarity that do exist, uh, citizen to citizens, Uh, because we are then helping each other it's not obvious we are not communicating it in a way and and then again I wonder is it desirable also uh, that we should have more mechanism I think Niklas mentioned you need European redistribution but then that's against the nation-state role and I think we don't want this federal concept either so uh, but there is there is for sure a, a contradiction between how the European level is coming down to the European citizens and what is the role of nation states. And I have no solution. I'm just throwing this in, uh, hoping that somebody has a solution. Oh.
0: Uh, can I add a question? Oh, sorry, Michel, you had something to say. here.
1: Uh, well, maybe <laughs> just as an addition, um, but again, please go ahead also with your question and just interrupt me because I think what it shows, the discussions we have so far is that you can indeed have solidarity out of self-interest, right? That's uh, clearly something uh, that we should also not blame anyone for. I mean, this is just part of, of the whole variety of different tools we have in the toolbox uh, conceptually. But also, there is um, we seem to show solidarity uh, out of self-interest, but also... Uh, in in economic terms, very often, um, yeah. I mean, if you read the various chapters, for example, in the book, you will hear very often. And Gunilla, in her Swedish chapter, also you introduce yourself, right, by elaborating a little bit on the frugal four, etc., and um, and the net payers and the net receivers, and this discussion. But most interestingly, if you look at the book, and now allow me maybe to zoom into one or two countries, in Poland, for example, which is now in the news for very other reasons uh, these days, it is very remarkable when you read the Polish chapter, Poland seems to be really much uh, an example where solidarity is is, is defined in a one-way road, in a one-way street. Yeah, because for historical reasons, I mean, the author argues very strongly uh, that Poland expects to be... Uh, at the receiving end of the solidarity concept. It's very simple. Yeah, it's it's, it's very simple. Uh, And and that's why, um, so it's it's not a concept in Poland that is based on reciprocity, not at all. If you think about European solidarity and if you talk to Polish uh, colleagues, uh, their understanding is very much Due to the experiences, the historical experience, it's a one-way road, and it's not a reciprocity uh, concept. And that's important to understand. If you go, for example, to a different country, there it's all about reciprocity, right? There, you, if you zoom into Malta, um, uh, right? Um, the question here, or or Luxembourg, for example, depending, fifty uh, percent of their employees are commuters. So the moment we had, uh, with COVID, the closing of all borders, I mean, the Luxembourgish prime minister said, you kill my country. That's, uh, and he was missing reciprocity, solidarity, because simply because everyone was thinking about him or herself, the borders closed. And all by a sudden, Luxembourg didn't have anyone to work for anymore. And the country was really at the bridge of, of a collapse. So reading those individual chapters, you all by a sudden start realizing, oh, damn it, this is really complicated. Um, yeah. And, and because of historical um, um, linkages, because of the economy, because of the geographics as well, Uh, That's another notion that might be more important when we move on to the more um, uh, policy-relevant questions uh, here today. Um, And the answers around solidarity do really differ across uh, the 27 member states and beyond. Mm
0: Yeah, Uh, no, I I really agree with you, Michel, from my contacts with my colleagues. I am sometimes uh, a bit disturbed about uh, listening to this and uh, when we come into migration in the next part of it, we will see it even more, I would say. Uh, No, I have a question to you. Uh, I'm wondering, how do you see uh, solidarity uh, in terms of the EU's uh, policies towards other parts of the world? It has become an issue uh, to a degree when it comes to uh, the vaccines. Uh, We are now heading towards the third jab of vaccine for ourselves, whereas many African countries may reach about 5% of their population. And some people say we should behave otherwise. Would you say that Europe being um, a very rich a continent small but very rich also have a solidarity need for solidarity against others. much more of the discussion in Europe today is to europe has to be strong europe has to be autonomous europe has to be uh, actor an actor in the global sphere but there is also sometimes also this other uh, concept of what are our responsibilities. Uh, Katarina?
2: No indeed I mean I said there are different roots of, of solidarity and one of them is the more moral uh, solidarity yeah. which I think actually is a common uh, theme. Uh, it's part of the European identity uh, that that so I, I, I firmly believe that that Europe has such a moral obligation and I think it's shared also uh, by member states and uh, the EU is actually the world's largest uh, foreign aid donor and mm. uh, I don't know No, I should if I had been in my former job I would have known the figures but I heard Ursula von der Leyen uh, saying in her state of the union um, that's uh I, I don't know, maybe Niklas and Michel knows this, but half of the vaccines produced in Europe has been given to the to the outside uh outside of the EU, which is far more than any other continent or country mm-hmm. has done. Mm. Uh, so I I I think it should, and I think it also exists a solidarity with the rest of the world. Very good.
1: Uh
0: Michel, and then Niklas?
1: Yeah, maybe just to make this point even, even stronger, I think the simple fact that in the European Union, the heads of state and government agreed the European Commission to organize the procurement to actually, but even before, to collect money. I mean, the first big events in order to 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 collect money, in order to develop vaccines, was uh, co-organized together with the European Commission. And it was with this money that actually industries Across the world, and that was not only limited to the EU, uh, could start producing uh, or researching to start off with around the new vaccine. So it was, and that was, that was not just something we knew that was targeting or benefiting us, the European Union, but that would benefit uh, all uh, globally. I think that's an important point. Having said that, though, I also want to make a critical uh, assessment because in the end, if you look at the vaccines that are sent to Africa, I mean, now we are two years on, right? I mean, I was vaccinated more, well, roughly half a year ago. And in Africa, we start building now, BioNTech, for example, um, um, starts building now the first factories. And we start um, also um, sending, or we have started over the last couple of months, vaccine doses uh, to the African country, for example. But again, which vaccine doses do we send, right? Frankly, it is those that we do not use. It's AstraZeneca and everyone who doesn't want to have in the European Union. So it's also part of the story. We have to be fair here. Yes, we are the biggest donor of uh, vaccines. That's correct. But first of all, we also got rid of everything we do not use because no one wants to be vaccinated with it. Huh? I mean, that's also part of the coin. Huh? So it is, as I said, a moral concept to it. It's also about self-interest and also economic uh, notions. Um, I think it comes down to this uh, in the end again. But obviously, it's good than not having anything. Uh, but I wanted to make this nevertheless um, not as gloomy and glossily as it sometimes might uh, come across.
0: Very good, and then uh, Niklas.
3: Yeah, I, I don't think I can can add uh, too much now to what Katerina and Michal has already said, but but to me, again, maybe this, I mean, when it comes to the vaccine and, and trying to um, tackle or manage this global pandemic, I think uh, that the kind of the, the two aspects of the concept of solidarity that Katerina uh, before kind of raised in the sense that there is First, uh, the more obligation to help, right? Uh, neighbors, close and far away, and then obviously it's the enlightened self-interest. We all know, you know, mm-hmm. that we're not going to ha- be able to handle the pandemic unless you know we get the mm-hmm. the vaccine out. And otherwise, it's going just going to keep on uh, mutating uh, in in other parts of the world and they kind of come back to us, right? So that's that's very clear. But then again, I think. Uh, combining this to uh, again the kind of the, uh, the, the we have talked about the kind of the deep uh, historical um, uh, experiences that informs our our Europe the current European project when it comes to the outside world I think that's also an important aspect to take into account the kind of why Europe needs to to be or show solidarity or reflect about uh, solidarity is obviously uh, the history that that many of our countries uh, have when it comes to colonialism and and other uh, you know, wrongdoings that have been, been done in, in in European countries. And that cannot be, you know, taken away uh, either. So on the one hand, obviously, European integration of the EU is the promise of reforming, the promise of making something new to break out of the old way of doing politics in in, in Europe, right? The kind of the, the big power games, the great powers and stuff. Uh, maybe we're going back to that a little bit now since it's, it's, it's a, you know, a tougher environment and Gunilla, you mentioned that, you know, we're, you know, there are more talks now than, than ever, than, you know, the EU needs to kind of stand up for itself and become a great power. Uh, And that the kind of the old idea that the EU experience is built on the fundamental insight that we need to transform uh, power politics is, 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 is gradually kind of uh, being lost on us. But I think that's, that's you know, the only thing I'd like to add when it comes to the global uh, dimension, that yes, Europe needs to be solidarity and show solidarity with the rest of the world due to, due to the experience of European history, of course.
0: Thank you. And uh, now I would like to challenge you with the next question. And uh, let's uh, start in the other end with uh, Niklas now. So what can it mean in terms of policies? considering the differences between the different countries. And now we can go into the different issues. I think we have to go into the different issues. Uh, yeah. where, where can we find the positives examples? Where can we find a path forward? I think uh, Michel was a bit hinting here at uh, saying the uh, European Parliament was a good example of uh, uh, discussions across lines of various kinds. So please, uh, Niklas, give us your views.
3: Yeah, I think one um, issue, maybe which is not and maybe an issue in itself, since it connects to so many different policy areas uh, that the EU is involved in, uh, and that the EU is kind of very much forward leaning uh, is, of, of course, climate action. And to me, that seems also to be an, an issue that really kind of connects the different versions of different aspects of solidarity that we have talked about. To me, uh, obviously, it's a, a way to try to really use the uh, the power and the tools of, of, of the EU, right? So if uh, the kind of the, the Green Deal and the EU climate law really Uh, is able to put into practice these ambitious goals of fit fit for 55, reducing emissions with 55% until uh, 2030, and then achieve climate neutrality by 2050. Um, I mean, if we get, if the EU really kind of uh, leverage its its legislative capacities, its uh, financial capacities to help member states uh, really achieve this, uh, transition into a low-carbon uh, or even fossil-free economies. There's obviously a huge benefit to our economies, to our societies, and also to 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 the world, so to speak. So to me, that seems to be uh, maybe the key issue where we should really uh, emphasize that this is is of course again, as Katerina would say, enlightened self-interest. We need this. We, we want this for ourselves, but obviously it's something that uh, we can 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 make the benefits of succeeding with this is, is going to be felt uh, on a global level obviously what well, you know the eu being as you said grenilla uh, small of course a small um, part even though it's um, i mean it's it's rich but but small and in terms of global emissions, it's uh, I don't know if it's seven or eight percent now, and uh, in, 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 in compared to global emissions, so obviously it's small. But but still, if the EU really can achieve or, or deliver sorry can deliver on this uh, transformative, very big, ambitious climate um, package, I think that is really something that, that I would stress like this is to me takes so many boxes uh, in, in relation to. So many uh, of, of, of aspects of solidarity that we have talked uh, about here. So, yeah, that, I'd like to put that on the table.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you. And uh, Katharina?
2: Yes. Now, um, I just wanted to uh, to refer to our previous discussion first to get the, the record straight. What, what von der Leyen said, she said uh, in the State of the Union about vaccines that uh, the EU is the only continent that shared half of our vaccine production with the rest of the world. So 700 million doses to the European people and 700 million doses to the rest of the world, to more than 130 countries. But also I take the point what Michel has said that it might also have been the vaccine that the EU was not um, using itself. But nevertheless, I think it's quite impressive figures.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but uh, what in which policy areas solidarity should be um developed i completely agree with Niklas again i think that is um i mean in the interest uh, of everyone and if if the so it's it's not only european solidarity it's global solidarity to uh, to work on the on the climate issues um, and if the EU can can be at the forefront there uh, then it's the devil is in the detail of course there are many many things that can be discussed how to achieve it um, but that we would need a different uh, seminar to discuss um, I mean we have a very heated forest discussion right now in Sweden for example uh, we have discussions about the taxonomy so it's not always easy you have the uh, you have the discussion nuclear I mean you 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 agree on the overall uh, uh, objective but then uh, again coming back to Michael's first point understanding then you need to understand what are the motives behind each member state what are their situation you need to negotiate the way uh, but looking at other Areas. if you if you look at europe in, in particular uh, i think on the research um, i'm seeing and and that ties also to the global tensions and 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 relations with China uh, which are very difficult right now how how does europe respond to the geopolitical tensions and the fact that the global order is changing and there's an an incredible tech race going on right now with semiconductors being um, a severe shortage who will be the global leader in green hydrogen we saw macron's speech the other day said that in 2030 france will be the global leader in green hydrogen batteries we have Northvolt in sweden um so i think there is a There is a fantastic tech race. Over the summer, the U.S. Senate were uh, adopting a a, a fantastic uh, investment program in specific sectors. Uh, So uh, I think research, (laughs) I think we should really pool our resources uh, into, uh, into research program, even though it is a big program, but it's still... Quite uh, small, and there uh, we saw what uh, how, how quickly um, European vaccines could be developed. There are fantastic uh, uh, resources, um, brains in Europe that can be pulled together, and then I think also in the in the wake of the COVID, I think the health uh, field, we will see more solidarity when it comes to procurement of, of different, not only vaccines, uh, assistance of each other, uh, stockpiles are already, common stockpiles are already decided, uh, and, and strategic uh, assets. That, but nothing is simple. Then that also, if you if you continue that arguing arguing, you come into the also infected the discussion of strategic autonomy, and that might be in um, how do you say in contradiction with global solidarity, because we in Sweden tend to believe in free trade and 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 also uh, pooling not only European uh, resources but global resources in different fields. So nothing is easy, but. Um, just to make a couple of points. Sorry for co- maybe confusing more than being uh, uh, having straight uh, opinions
0: about things. No, you're, you're just uh, enlarging the uh, difficulties which are already there and which need to be enlightened the way you do. So that is great. So, Michel.
1: Thank you very much. Yes. Since we have a very well-informed audience, um, allow me now to get a little bit more technical because I think in order to answer the question, you have to simply agree and accept that when talking about EU policies, we need to consult this, the treaties, because it's in the treaties um, where we actually learn what possibilities and who the actors are, potential veto players, et cetera, et cetera. So we do have policies where the European Union have exclusive competence. We have policies where the European Union and the sovereign member states share competences. And we have still many policy areas where the sovereign member states coordinate themselves. Um, And I think that that is quite important to, to underline from the very early beginning when we talk about European solidarity and where we want to have more that you also have to accept, depending on how far the integration has gone in various policy areas, member states might be more or less willing, ready out of self-interest, out of economic terms, out of moral uh, duties, to actually uh, join in and to live um, solidarity in practice. I think that's extremely important and that we should not overload the European Union either with demands of solidarity in areas in particular where actually member states till now have not and could not agree to give up any of their sovereignty And I think health is a very good example, because that's exactly the dilemma we were in. Um, You'll remember the situation with COVID-19 that, um, yes, we were shutting down the the, the borders and all of this. But in the end, there was not really much the European Union could do. Once they shut the borders, okay, Schengen got kicked in, and then the European Commission could become active. But we needed the heads of state and government to come together and to basically conclude that the commission should start acting on behalf of the member states, because there is a European interest, because out of solidarity, we want the commission to act for the individual EU sovereign 27 member states, also in the field of health. And that's, I think, extremely important. I know it's complicated. You, the audience, you know this. But this is obviously complicated to communicate further um, right? and to explain um, out towards my students at the university and so on and so forth. But I think this is extremely important if you want to also address the question of whether we should make solidarity more conditional. I I don't think that this would be the trick because um, definitely not European solidarity because Europe Europe is so diverse depending on which policy area you want to talk about. And the European Union works and operates very differently whether you want to talk about even within energy, right? I mean, all the discussions now whether the Commission should allow nuclear power to be accepted for the CO2, etc. I mean, in the end, to be very frank, the energy mix... It's a national competence and there is nothing the commission can do about it. They can have ideas and views and publish papers and opinion. I mean, that's all fine and needed and necessary. I'm not saying that it's not, but in the end, it is France's decision if they want to continue and want to achieve the goals with nuclear power and it's Germany's decision if they do not want to uh, look into nuclear power. So it's that easy. And that's something we always have to remind us whenever we talk and specifically cry out for more Europe or where is Europe or what, that we always have to first ask ourselves, so what would the European Union have to do in the first place? What it is allowed to do? And where is actually, where do we do not want the European Union to do anything? And that brings me maybe to a second point in the life, if you allow me, you see I'm getting all, um, all excited. Um, the other point is, um, pick um, uh, migration. I mean, if you read, for example, the Maltese chapter of, this, of our book uh, together, co-edited with Johannes Pollack and uh, Paul Schmidt, um, the Maltese chapter is extremely interesting because they um, they consider clearly migration as the main failure um, of solidarity. I mean, for them, this was really the worst um, experience they they had. Migration representing the low point of perceived solidarity. I mean, you read the chapter, and it's really it's it's really shocking uh, to read. They feel they were left alone and they probably were left alone and they will keep on leaving them uh, alone, to be very frank, because we still do not really manage to find a solution at the European Union level. But also if you read your chapter or the Luxembourgish, the, um, uh, Luxembourgish chapter, um, it's this lack of so- solidarity in the reception of refugees and how to deal with uh, refugees that this um, is underlined uh, very much so. But then again, Mm. the problem here was probably uh, most importantly, I know that um, it was a very different situation, difficult situation. And uh, we had a German chancellor to announce um, that we would accept uh, that we would in Germany would open the borders and that putting enormous pressure on all our EU member states. The problem with this announcement was, I mean, she's praised by many and she's doomed by many because of this, um, now after 16 years of her chancellery. But the point is that the, from a European perspective, the biggest problem was that she did not consult anyone on this point. Yeah? If she had consulted before and informed all the other heads of state and government, if she had phoned... And normally she does this on all other matters, but on this she didn't. I think that was the biggest problem. Um, and that's why this experience of solidarity went terribly wrong. And actually, I would even say, and many others would probably agree, that this, unfortunately, is uh, also an example where things did not work simply, but they get got actually, they... they, they, they even put the European Union and the solidarity within the European Union at great risk. I mean, many of the problems we have right now on different policy areas are clearly linked also to this incident. And this is something that comes with a consequence, that we need to continue, that we need to consult and create a trust in order to generate a feeling of solidarity i think that's so important and that's why we keep on huh? we need to know and learn from each other that's one thing we need to be open to learn from each other but the other thing is also that we need to continue to talk to each other and that's why the european institutions as i said also earlier are inspired by the spirit of solidarity yeah in the end this is exactly what these institutions facilitate, uh, the European Council, the Council of Ministers. It is their role also to bring the leaders, the ministers, and others together in order to have that exchange, to, in order to have actually this trust-building exercise, because that's in the end what this is all about. And if you allow me one last point, I mean, who else than the Commission, you should read the British chapter as well, Who else than the European Commission was better equipped to do the negotiations on Brexit? If we it was Michel Barnier and his team who, in an excellent way, defended the European interests and kept on informing all the member states from the very early beginning. Every member state felt being informed. And it was perfect to choose the European Commission here, because that was a supranational institution that was amongst others also one of the uh reds i don't know how do you say in a ball fight for the Brits. that was obviously also uh, the Syriza, sur la tarte and then a french speaking one with a perfect accent so that was a very perfect match in 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 in, in, a, in a lot of different, on a lot of different dimensions but in the end it was the best choice from a european perspective to have all member states rallying behind the European Commission, the European Commission informing the member states on a regular basis. And even heads of state and governments, like, for example, um, um, uh, Victor Orban, they joined in. I mean, if you remember uh, Theresa May's appearance uh, in, uh, where was it, at the uh, European Council meeting, uh, when, when she actually came to the heads of state and governments of the European Union hoping to get some concessions uh, after having tried bilaterals continuously in order to break, so to say, the community. But no, they toge- they stayed together. And that was solidarity par excellence. Ireland was if you if, was showered by solidarity, by European solidarity. Yeah. We basically all EU member states identified themselves with the border issue. And because of this, yeah, we were not willing to move a centimeter on that very topic and that was only possible because we had an independent um uh, supranational uh, institution inspired by the principle of solidarity the european commission
0: mm. thank you. you very much uh, Misha. i agree with everything you say about the uh, brexit negotiations but i just wonder about uh, Frau Merkel, if she would have consulted with others, would Germany have done very much then? Because they would have met a number of countries that were not willing to do very much at all. And this was a big disappointment seen from the Swedish side. <coughs> Sweden acted in a uh, uh, in a feeling of solidarity, waiting for others to come along, and to its huge disappointment, didn't see many come along, Uh, Germany did, but not many others. And uh, as we mentioned before, there are still, I counted today to 11 countries in Europe who were not willing to take in any new refugees. I may be wrong, but this is what it looked in one of the uh, documents that I saw. Would you like to add something?
1: yeah, if that's possible, because the problem here probably was that this decision was taken by qualified majority. That was not anonymous yeah. uh, decision in the European Council yeah. so and we and that never happens, as you know, right? I mean, yeah. th- I mean, that's how, ha- I mean, even, In the European Council, consensus is the driving um, decision-making rule, and in the Council, we have qualified majority on these matters, but we hardly actually implement it. Most of the legislation is still adopted by consensus. Here we made an exception, here we started to have quotas. And that that was not a very good choice, because in the end, these tricky questions I mean, as I said, it's about trust building. It's about confidence building. If you want to have, because of the differences across EU member states, you need to continue to negotiate. We had with the budget, uh, the rescue fund. Katarina made this very clearly, we had four days or was it even five days we negotiated and in the end we had a deal, even with the frugal four, even with everyone joining in. We can do this if we want, but we need to I mean, we need to talk and speak until we have a solution.
0: Yeah. I think yeah. that's the point. Can I come in with a question here? Uh, <clears throat> it's a long question. Uh In case of migration, would it not be helpful to look at the federal systems in order to learn how they cope with, for example, a mass influx of refugees? For example, in the United States, some states do not receive Afghan refugees, while others do. The intake of refugees is therefore no question of solidarity, but self-understanding and then within brackets. By the way, it took the United States until 1980 to have federal competences on the allocation of refugees. So in order to hold the EU, to get EU together, solidarity should not be an absolute demand, question mark. Uh, Katharina. I mean, this is extremely difficult
2: because it's also an emotional and sensitive issue. Um, But um, it is also true that there is no uh, competence to have uh, for the EU to have a common um, regime uh, on, I mean, every member state decide today how many um, um, migrants it should take. Uh, and there is, that's what Ilva Johansson is trying to change, to have a common regime. Um, so when Germany and Sweden took a lot uh, during 2015, it was on, on a voluntary basis. Uh, they weren't forced by the EU to do it. And it is also, as the question implies, very, very difficult issue to find a common regime because there are for historical reasons, for many other reasons, very difficult concepts on this. So um, my conclusion on this uh, is, again, uh, I think it, it, there, needs to, there needs to be a lot of discussions on this uh,
0: to find common rules. Uh, I think it cannot be forced <coughs> on member states. And how do you see the present development? I mean, we have had uh, uh, influx of refugees, mainly from the south and from the southeast, and now we have the uh, refugees instigated by Belarus, who come to Poland, who come to Lithuania, and also now to Germany, which is worried about this new development. And the EU is talking about uh, sanctions towards Belarus. Do you think this would have any effect? What should be done here? And what should the EU do? Michel?
1: I mean, um, now putting on my German uh, head perhaps for a time being, um, now, as you know, we are currently in the process. That we just had elections, general elections, and we are currently in the process of forming a new government. And if you look at the uh, preparatory paperwork around the negotiations, which are currently ongoing, and we are expecting a new government to take office most likely even before the winter break, Uh, that this uh, will be one of the big uh, topics. Uh, All three partners, the Social Democrats, the Greens and the Liberals um, already agreed upon that they would um, um, come back to Brussels and the European Commission in order to try again uh, to find a European uh, solution. Because as you know, the reform of the migration system is deadlocked, Uh, the current government Um, And even with the Polish situation, there's not much um, that you can expect right now. In terms of sanctions, I don't know. There are different positionings uh, right now. The government, the German government, is is rather reluctant to do anything right now in the coming four months Mm -hmm. or three months, to be very frank. So um, I'm rather skeptical that there will be any big major progress on this but the good news is that the next government, as it looks, this will be the next government, at least another attempt is um, will be um, on the agenda to find a European solution and to reform the current migration system. Um, um, yeah, so that's just what I can reflect back from you um, directly from Germany um, out of the negotiations, which are currently ongoing. But maybe also the German um, ambassador or consul is uh, here in the audience. He might be able, she, she might be able to join in as well.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, me, uh,
3: Thank you, Gunilla. Uh, I think uh, I mean it's um, as Katrina already said. It's 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 a very kind of uh, emotional, sensitive uh, question to debate, right? So and to me, it it, it always feels. Uh, strange to think that that the kind of you know, that we talk about solidarity when it comes to refugees and we don't focus on being solid you know show solidarity with the refugees rather than trying to say that it's you know the it's the quota it's it's finding the right equilibrium among every state when it comes to intake of refugees that's where the object of solidarity should be be replaced so to speak So to me that's an an, an an a complicated kind of uh position to take obviously even though we're all understand the political realities that goes into, into this particular issue, of course. Um, I, I think, uh, to me, it has been extremely, uh, and I hope that the audience uh, also thinks uh, think uh, this, that it has been very enlightening, right, our discussion here. It, it really kind of highlights the... Uh, the the complicated nature of the of this political community, which is the the EU in a sense, and and it's I think it's up to all of us to really think hard uh, in terms of what it when it is meaningful to talk about European solidarity, when we can expect that, and and when it's not, when it's meaningful to kind of you know put that on the table or not, since it's it's it, it is this. Complicated mix. Uh, Michal, you know, showed us the, the the treaties. Obviously, it's a complicated mix when it comes to to competences, and also obviously the kind of the merging of of, of, of interests here. Uh, so I think it's it has been extremely um, valuable here. And I think the the question from the from the audience uh, pointing to the the U.S. experiment is also I think valuable to our our, our um, conversations here, since it has been. I mean, obviously, from an outside perspective, we think about the United States as a unitary actor, um, but it also has, you know, it has emerging properties, evolving properties within, within itself. Uh, and it's, it's, even though it has been a federation for a long time, there is still that ongoing, of course, political contestation within the U.S., what should be on the federal level and what should be on the, on the state levels, in a sense. I think, uh, obviously, there are things to learn from the US and there's also things to really ponder when we try to kind of move forward also meaningfully and, 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 and on our side of, of, of the Atlantic and try to maybe advance uh, our cooperation or integration in, in, in Europe. But I think for me, it is, has been really enlightening that there's this patchwork, the common European framework is, is, is really a complicated patchwork. And sometimes it is meaningful to talk about solidarity. Sometimes it may be less so. Yeah. Because it's, I mean, because the the kind of how to say the the possibilities to act in in solidarity in, in solidarity or in solidarity ways are are so different, right, in, in different uh, areas. Uh,
0: what you say now, Niklas, and also the uh, question from the audience reminds me of another discussion and research area that we have now in Europe and also within TEPSA, which is about. The differentiated integration that we have in Europe—it is really, as you say, Nicholas, a patchwork, a patchwork of integration, a patchwork of different issues where we, which we relate to in very, very different ways. Not only within, when talking about solidarity, but also in a number of other fields, which makes the question of solidarity much more difficult. Because then we may see solidarity as one of the issues where we might be more integrated or less integrated. So my final question to you is, what is the most important things in Europe? What areas are there that where we can't make a compromise, that we have to put our foot down and say, this is where we have to agree uh, in solidarity with each other. You have about... Uh, five minutes only, so very short. Uh, Michel, you're the first.
1: Yeah, if I just may jump in here. I think maybe to, to to give an answer to your question, I think also in light of the concept you just brought in with differentiated integration, and so um, thinking about the future of Europe as a differentiated uh, Europe, I mean, we are already differentiated in many respects in many policy areas already, and it would definitely not make EU decision-making and our understanding of EU governance easier, let's put it that way, but more complicated. It also raises um, the solidarity aspect, right? Because some countries might feel to be singled out, to be not part of a club, of a, of a particular club that, that comes with a serious risk. And if you are up for, creating a European identity, a European public sphere, this is not very helpful in that regard. And we also have to make sure um, that member states um, do not start or think, just because we might develop Europe further in a more differentiated way, that solidarity is a concept that we can pick and choose a la carte from the menu, right? That we say, okay, Ireland. Yes. Thank you for the shower of solidarity vis-a-vis vis- vis- vis Brexit. But on taxation, there is no way <laughs> we will be uh, solidary with the European Union. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, uh, quite important uh, to bring this up, um, right? So that we have to remind member states then, um, and that's why we need to talk and continue and have these forums, these European institutions to talk to build trust and to have forests of exchange and views, because these will be the forests where, in the end, potentially deals will be able, uh, will be possible, because we might be um, able also to convince then even the Irish to to remind them of the good old days of the Brexit and the solidarity they they witnessed um, par excellence And here maybe also showing some flexibility vis-a-vis tax harmonization. I mean, there's always hope, right? Um, So with this positive notion, I would give back the floor to you, Gunilla. Thank you.
0: Thank you. And I give it on to Katarina. Thank you.
2: That's a very tricky question, Gunilla. Um, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm thinking, you know, there, because you said which are the most important areas where we really need solidarity. I think it depends on how far we have come in the, in our cooperation in different areas. I mean, let's say healthcare, for example, then I don't think, or I'm certain that day-to-day healthcare we don't need solidarity in that. And we have very different systems and that should be left for the na- nation states and maybe for the regions even. That's nothing we should have on the EU level. But on in a crisis situation, then we definitely lead, need EU cooperation. Then it's maybe vital. It's even vital that we have solidarity. So you have to go from sector to sector uh, Maybe the most obvious ones uh, is the f- like the foundation of the of the, of the eu um, um with the economic cooperation because that is again the enlightened self interest not maybe vital as in the healthcare or crisis situation, but I think everybody agrees that we are better off together if we have open borders uh, we have the four freedoms that that is a solidarity. I think the four freedoms is nobody wants to. Uh, well, almost nobody wants to go back on that. And then future looking, Niklas was already uh, mentioning the climate issue is maybe in the long term the most vital issue for solidarity. Uh, so, um, so I think it depends again. Um, very much on the area and the, what level of cooperation you are at. On migration, we need to take baby steps, I, I think, and, and, and see uh, where we where we create the first positive movements that everybody, uh, and I, I must, uh, this is extremely boring, and pro- probably people will think I'm 200 years old when I'm doing this, but um, I must cite still the, the Schumann Declaration, because I think he was so smart. Be, he said that Europe will not be made all at once or according to a single plan. It will be built through concrete achievements, which first create a de facto solidarity. Uh, it's very old fashioned to do those kind of say, citations, but I think there's a lot of truth uh, uh, into it. So that, that's my final word. And thank you for extremely interesting discussions.
0: Thank you. Uh, Niklas, please.
3: Thank you, Gunilla, and thank you, Katerina. Uh, I think the, citing so the Schumann Declaration is always a, a good exercise. We should do that in uh, at our seminars in European politics here at the university to have the students read that declaration because there's so much in it, right? And we can have so much discussion on what the, actually came out of that uh, initial kind of push towards European integration from us. I think it's it's always a good day, you know, when you cite the Schumann Declaration, um, <laughs> but, but to me, um, to me, I'd like to then uh, end with a paradox, uh, since that's also maybe intriguing for, for, for listeners and, and, and future students of European politics. To me, it's again, it's, it's very hard to f- envision a functioning, a well functioning European common market without the rule of law and without a kind of you know, strong democratic institutions on a national level. We know that you know, we, the, the, the market economy cannot function without kind of uh, you know, good governance, so to speak. This is the kind of the quality of government argument coming out of our colleagues in, in Gothenburg and other places. So to me, it's extremely important that uh, the EU is not backing down when member states are uh, um, dismantling the rule of law, dismantling democratic institutions at home, in pure self-interest because we know that the kind of, we're not gonna have uh, a functioning uh, common market without functioning uh, institutions and rule of law at home. But it's a paradox itself since since we say that, you know, we respect uh, sovereignty and we want sovereignty, obviously, and we want to respect national democracies. It can be a democratic decision somehow for certain member states to actually roll back the rule of law and even liberal democracy. It's the fundamental democratic paradox at the heart also of, of, of our common project. So to me, it's fundamental that we stick to rule of law and we uphold it and also try to do it from a European level. But at the same at the same time, it seems paradoxical since we have been, you know, for an hour or more discussing uh, the, the limits of European integration on the back of, of the principle of state sovereignty. So um, I don't know if, if that's uh, an invitation for a new seminar or a book, Gunilla, or something. That or it's just the you know eternal question that we, that we look, look at.
0: Look at Michel now. <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah. But uh, okay, I am with that paradox. But to me, that's that's extremely important: rule of law and, and democracy.
0: So my last words are an immense thank you for this very, very excellent discussion and really deep insights that the three of you have. So from my heart, thank you very much.